are not in 1 John. We are beginning a new series this morning, and uh, I, I will have to say this last time going through the book of 1 John was my first time in a, a church setting, really going through it verse by verse, uh, chapter by chapter, and just taking everything that the Lord um, inspired his uh, disciple to write. And it was a, a great blessing. Um, but like all great things, we uh, move to the next great thing as an, as an inspired book. Uh, and we are back in the Old Testament now. Uh, if you saw Pastor's email, we have spent a lot of time in the New Testament. And now we want to be faithful to the whole Bible and go back to the Old Testament. Now, this is one of the minor prophets. And there are not many churches that I have been to that uh, tend to frequent the minor prophets. They are sometimes overlooked, or if they are turned to at all, they are uh, often just quoted, or if they make any kind of reference in the New Testament, we can go back and look at the minor prophets. But it's usually Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel that get a lot of the prophetic attention from the Old Testament. And one of my heroes of the faith, Dr. James White, when he landed at the church he was at, uh, Phoenix Reformed Baptist Church, years and years ago, uh, he often says that the reason he stayed at that church when he walked in and he heard the music, it was wonderful, but when the pastor got up and started preaching, they were preaching through the minor prophets. And so that, that shocked him a little bit that people still preach the minor prophets. So he thought this might not be a bad place to stay for a little while. And so he did, and he was there for, for uh, a few decades, I believe. And so here we are. And if you are new here and you're hearing that we're in a minor prophet this morning, uh, I, I hope that it is a blessing to you this morning. Um, a couple reasons why we are doing this. Um, two I'll give you here. And the first, and probably the most important one, is that Malachi is part of the Bible. It is part of the Word of God. It was inspired. Uh, Malachi was inspired to write it, and therefore it is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. And so we want to be faithful in teaching and preaching through the whole counsel of God and, and to be faithful there. There are uh, things that we can apply to our lives from the minor prophets, and I will talk about that more in a little while, uh, the cautions that we should take in, in this, but we rest in it is the word of God. The second, going back to Pastor's email that he sent out, uh, Malachi poses a series of questions to his people that help us examine ourselves and our hearts and test our hearts and exercise our faith to serve God most accurately. So it is our benefit as Christians, as the people of God, as God's chosen people to preach this book, to read this book, to hear what is taught in this book. So that is my encouragement as we go into this, as we prepare our hearts um, to, to hear what Malachi has to say. As uh, we had talked about what might come after First John, Pastor encouraged myself and Steve to, to read through a couple books. And uh, reading through Malachi, I hadn't done it since I took the prophets class in uh, Western Reformed. And so it was just one of those 
one of those things that I read through it and I, I came to pastor and I said, you know, I, I, I lean more towards Malachi. And pastor said, well, I think that's the direction that I'm leaning to. So uh, I think the Lord is definitely in the guiding of this next series. So before we fully jump in, let us bow and pray and ask the Lord to bless the, uh, the preaching of his word. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we come into your house again this week humbled by your greatness, by your mercy and your kindness towards us. We rejoice in the freedom that we have, that we get to be here this morning. We get to open your word. We get to sing praises to you. We get to worship you. And Father, we are, uh, in the grand scheme of things, just dust. We play no significant part in the timeline of history as we think of other great men and women who have come before us. But Lord, you have called us by name. You have placed your image upon us. You have called us to Christ. And Lord, you have blessed us. So Father, I just pray that as we open your word and we see what you have for us this morning, that you would bless this time, that you would cause myself to decrease, that Christ might increase. For it's in his name we pray and who we choose to worship Amen. So before we get into the actual passages here, one of the benefits of of getting into a new series is laying a little foundation and groundwork um, that that we build off of. And to give a little bit of a context to the book that we will be studying for these, these coming months. One of the difficult things about Malachi is that there's no real explicit statement of chronology here. Uh, Some other prophetic books tell us it was in the fifth year of so-and-so's reign over this area. We don't get that here at the beginning of Malachi. But there are clues within the text that help place it in the timeline um, in history. And one of those is the audience. So in verse 1, we'll come back to this in just a moment, but it is the word of the Lord to Israel. Israel. So as we consider this and and look at the commentaries and historians, but uh, it is after the return of, uh, of Israel from exile. So it's probably about 80 to 100 years after uh, the prophetic ministry of Zechariah. Now, Another key clue that we can have through here to help place it was that the temple was likely rebuilt at the time of Malachi's um, ministry uh, due to the language that is used. If we look at uh, chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, it says this, By offering polluted food upon my altar, but you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised, when you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that you or present that to your governor, will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. So the language used here is offering and sacrifice, which helps us to understand that the temple was probably rebuilt at this time, or else there wouldn't be an altar to offer sacrifices on. In, in, a light, in a similar way, when we look at the book of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. We can, we can talk about that. But one of the clues in, in dating the book of Hebrews is also the temple. 
The book of Hebrews was written to believing Jews who were tempted to go back to the old ways of doing things. They were tempted to go back and offer sacrifices upon the altar. And the author of Hebrews is saying, no, there's nothing to go back to. Christ was the finished and final and perfect sacrifice for sins. So when you go back and offer the sacrifice, there's nothing there. There's nothing to offer. It's been fulfilled. And so we can likely date the book of Hebrews prior to the destruction of the temple because because there wouldn't be an altar to offer sacrifices, there wouldn't be anything for them to go back to. So when we look at the book of Malachi, it's probably somewhere dating in the mid-400s B.C. This is also the last time that God spoke or speaks for over 400 years. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. And that period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, that 400 or so years, is called the intertestamental period, where God doesn't speak. There is no prophet to speak for God. And it's interesting, I find it interesting, that the next time that God does speak in the timeline of Scripture is actually through a mute so uh, when God speaks to Zechariah to announce the, the birth of John the Baptist, Zechariah is fulfilling his temple duties, and uh, Zechariah answers back to God, and God says, you'll be mute until the, the birth of your child. And so when Zechariah comes out, the people knew that God had done something because Zechariah couldn't speak. So here you have 400 years of silence, and God breaks that silence with silence. And I find that uh, rather fascinating with how God chooses to work and how God chooses to uh, reveal his will and encourage us in those ways. Uh, Calvin suggests that the silence in, uh, in this period and no prophet was to uh, prepare the hearts of the people for the coming of the Messiah. He says this, A focus on the Messiah... Hearts would, prepare, would be prepared. It was indeed either a token of God's wrath or a presage of Christ's coming when they were deprived of that benefit which Moses mentions in Deuteronomy 18. For God had then promised to send prophets that the Jews might know that he cared for their safety. When therefore God left his people without prophets, it was either to show his great displeasure as during the Babylonian exile or to hold them in suspense that they might with stronger desire, look forward to the coming of Christ. And I would make a suggestion to us today. Could this be true now? We are constantly faced with the question of, God, does God still speak today? And we would hold to a cessationist view that we would say, no, we don't believe God is giving new revelation, that God does speak through his word, absolutely, but that God is not giving new revelation today, where the, the, the charismatic side would say that God is still speaking today, that there are still prophets and apostles and, and all that today. But understanding cessationism and this idea of longing, because while they were waiting for the coming of their Messiah, for the coming of Christ, we too are also waiting for the return of Christ, to see our Messiah once again. And so we look and find our hope in the promises that God has made to us, and he says he is coming back, and we have work to do until that time Many people desire signs and wonders to show when Christ is coming back. And 
It's interesting when the Pharisees uh, demanded signs and wonders from Jesus, he says, an evil and adulterous generation desires signs and wonders. Um, Christ gave one sign, and he said, the sign of Jonah will be your sign. And we look back on that, the death and the burial and resurrection of Christ, to know that Christ will one day return and call us home. So I think that we do have some similarities to the people of of Malachi back in that day, today, as we do also await our Messiah to come back. The audience of the book is written to mainly backslidden people, people who had turned worship and sacrifice into simply just a religious duty. Their offerings and their giving and so on was just simply uh, checking a box or, or, or um, going with the motions. And I think if we take an honest reflection on worship and our worship, I would, I would caution us, is this where we might find ourselves sometimes? Is this where the church might find itself sometimes? And I would just ask you, as we um, take this time to reflect and to examine our own hearts, what is our attitude when it comes to God? What is our attitude when it comes to worship? How was your attitude when you woke up this morning um, to come to church? I don't want to assume anything. I know there are days where it's harder for me to get up and do what I need to do. And there are some days that are easy. But are we joyfully, are we excited to be in the presence of our, of our Lord? Are we excited to be around our brothers and sisters in Christ in fellowship? When we give our tithes and our offerings, do we do it joyfully or do we do it because we feel like we have to do it? Monday through Saturday, how do we live our lives? Is it just church on Sunday that we act like Christians and we rejoice in our Savior? Or do we do that in our day-to-day activities when we go to work, when we go to school, when we interact with other people? In our family life, how do you treat your spouse? How do you raise your children? And it's interesting, I, I keep saying interesting, but it's, it's fun to look back on some of this and, and Being a dad and having kids for only two years now uh, has humbled me quite a bit and has brought many things to my attention. A couple weeks ago, uh, my wife and I were home and the the girls were playing and we were getting their lunch ready. And lunch in our house is not really a formal um, occasion. We don't all sit down to eat lunch because usually something hectic is going on. But we got the girls seated, and we had their food, and I brought their food out to them, and I wasn't in the best mood in my life, and I set the food down before them, and I started to walk away, and Imogen goes, Daddy, prayer! And I stopped, and I realized we didn't say our prayers before we ate, and it was humbling to me, because there are those days that I just think it might be a checking the box, but... I was humbled by my own child and the duty that I had to my Savior and to my family to lead in that way. So that all being said, as, as, as a kind of intro, we are now brought to the text and what God has to say to us here. So we'll start in verse 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So the goal this morning is to get through the first three verses. Um, We already talked about the audience, so I won't go into that. But let's look a moment at the word oracle that is here. The ESV 
says, obviously, oracle. But if we look at the Legacy Standard Bible or the King James Bible or others, the word that is there might be burden, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So not everywhere in, prof- in prophecy is, is prophecy referred to as a burden. Okay? It's usually referred this way and, and translated this way when we're thinking of looking ahead to judgment, judgment coming. It is a burden. And in, in a sense, there is a judgment coming on the Jews at, at this period of time. Um, as we look forward, we know that the grafting of the Gentiles is, is coming in, that the gospel will go out to all nations, that um, God at one point in, his, in the prophecy has actually divorced Israel. He has is, he is, uh, left Israel to their idolatry and their sins, and he has to- foretold of a time when even the Gentiles would take the benefit of, of the covenant. And the Jews assumed, even in Jesus' day, that they were safe because they were children of Abraham. And John the Baptist says, you think that you're safe because you're children of Abraham, but I tell you this, God can make of these stones children of Abraham. So it's, it's, it's about who believes in God, who, who, gives, uh, who believes in Christ in faith, our spiritual children of Abraham. Faith was always the foundation of salvation, grace through faith in Christ, whether it's looking forward to Christ or looking back at his finished work, it has always been the foundation for salvation. And then the, in this judgment of the Jewish, na- the Jewish nations, it does turn out to be a blessing for the rest of the world as the gospel goes out. The burden is indeed heavy, but it is heavy on those who reject the gospel. It is heavy on those who turn to idols and turn to sin and turn away from God. And so from this comes the idea of covenant. If we look at verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. Bullock uh, calls Malachi the prophet of covenant love, and I think that this is a, a good title for him. Um, when you first, if you if you come out of a system of theology that is not Calvinistic, that is not Reformed, there there's a process of cleansing called cage stage, where you just want to prove that Calvinism is true. You want to, uh, you're a soldier for predestination and election, and you have to prove it everywhere you go. But once you get out of that cage stage and you mature and you actually settle down, you do see Reformed theology, what is taught in Calvinism, all throughout Scripture. And the same, I think, goes with covenant theology. Now, I just wrote a paper on covenant theology for the Presbytery, and I do indeed see it everywhere. Um, as, as I study it. And one thing that we should never doubt, yet I think it's often what people do doubt about God, is his love for his covenant people. God loves his covenant people. When we're called to examine ourselves and to look at sin that might be in our life or uh, if we're in the faith or anything like that, it's not about how, how sorry can I feel for myself? It's not about trying to out-sin somebody else. I've often been in, um, in testimony, or I've heard testimonies where they bring people up and, and give their testimony, and it always kind of seems like the, the next person is trying to outdo 
the person who came before them. The person comes up and, well, I was addicted to drugs for 15 years and then the Lord saves me and we feel really good about that. And then the next person comes up and says, well, I was addicted to drugs for 20 years and I even committed other crimes, but the Lord saved me. And then the next guy comes up, well, I was addicted to drugs for 50 years and then the Lord saved me. And it's just this kind of constant trying to outdo somebody else's testimony. And that's not what examining ourselves means. That's not what... what um, we're talking about here in, in giving our testimony and living and being a living testimony. But it is about talking about what God has done for us, how God has worked in our life, and ultimately in that, how God has kept his promises to his people. And so we kind of get this idea here in, in Israel's response to God is, how? How have you loved us? Um, God says, I have loved you. God affirms his love for his covenant people, and they say, well, how? Prove it. Show us how you've loved us. And my inclination is to say, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? But God, in his patience and in his love and in his mercy for his people, actually demonstrates and shows them how he has loved them. God could have said, well, you're not in captivity anymore. You're not in bondage to somebody else. I brought you back. What more do you want? He doesn't do that. Because he has a greater picture in mind. God goes back to the foundations of the faith. God goes back to the patriarchy. There are so many other things that God could have said here to show, hey, to prove that he has loved the people over the years. He could have said, well, the earth hasn't been flooded again. I promised I wouldn't do that. You see the rainbow in the sky. I haven't done that. Uh, could have gone back to the plagues of Egypt and the doorpost. Could have gone back to the Red Sea and his delivering of Israel from slavery. The inheriting of the promised land, the conquering of God's enemies, and preserving them in the captivities. But no, God goes back to Jacob. God goes back to the one he loved. Now, the story of Jacob and Esau, we went over in Sunday school a little bit today, but Jacob was the younger of the two brothers, of the twins. And in that time, the older would have inherited uh, everything. The older would have gotten the blessing. The older would have gotten everything. But God told um, Rebekah that the older will serve the younger. And so Jacob was the child of promise in this way. Jacob, I love. Esau, I hated. God chose Jacob. Just like any of God's people, God chose you. God doesn't unchoose somebody who belongs to him. We looked at that in our study in 1 John chapter 2. If somebody shows that they have abandoned the faith, we can say that they went out from us because they were never truly of us. But if we belong to God, if we are part of his flock, God does not lose any that he draws to himself. And so we can't look at a passage like this and get away from the doctrine of predestination and election. And when we, when we see this, or when we look to Jacob and Esau, when we look at the story of Joseph, when we look all through Scripture and, and understand the sovereignty of God and the ordaining of all things that come to pass, I don't see how anybody could not hold and believe to this kind of doctrine. Ephesians 2, when we're talking about salvation, says you were dead 
in your trespasses and sins. And then God raised you up. God gave you new life. You cannot raise yourself up out of death. Only God can do that. You cannot save yourself. You cannot contribute to your own life. Just like in your birth, you did nothing to contribute to that, so in your second birth, you do nothing there. It is all an act of God. It is all a choice of God based on his own goodwill and mercy and kindness towards you. Uh, Paul, um, it's, a, it's an interesting case when we hear people talking about asking Jesus into your heart or making that decision to follow Jesus and all that. Um, uh, there's a meme on, online of Paul on on the road where he meets Christ, and Christ appears to him and says, Paul, quickly, ask me into your heart so that I can save you, so that I can use you. And that's not what Jesus did. He confronted Paul. He saved Paul. And so when God is saying, I have loved you, he goes back to the choice, his sovereign choice. I have loved Jacob. And you are from Jacob. You come from Abraham. I have loved Abraham. You are my people, and I have loved you in my choosing of you, in my caring for you, in my uh, providing for you. Bless those who bless you. Curse those who curse you is one of the promises that God gave to Abraham. And when we even look back at the bad times, quote-unquote, for um, Israel, when we look at Assyria conquering the northern kingdom, Isaiah 10, 5 through 7, if we turn there for just a moment, we see God's sovereign hand here in executing his judgment over Israel. He says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my fury. Assyria was a tool that God used to execute judgment over Israel. And just a few verses later in verse 12, it says, When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Syria, and the boastful look into his eyes. So Assyria's fate for, for doing what they did, they did it of their own choice. But God still judged them for that because they were wicked and they came against his chosen people. And all of this... All of this, Israel still asks, how did you love us? How did you love us? How have you loved us? And our assurance of God's love for each and every one of us comes from standing on the promises that he has given in his word and by his word. We read God's word and have that assurance. In verse 3 of Malachi chapter 1, it says, But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Now, a lot of people get hung up on this word hate, that God would, would hate somebody or hate a people, and, and I don't think now is the time to really get into all of that. But I think, as many commentators do, when we look at Jacob and Esau, and Paul even quotes uh, Malachi 1 when he's talking about uh, God's election and his purpose in election is the, the blessings, the, the, the choosing, the favor of a person. God favored Jacob um, by his own will. Because Esau was blessed in a, in, in a way. Esau did go out to be a, a nation. And Obadiah spoke of judgment against Edom. And at this point, as we see, as he says, Esau, I have hated, I have laid waste his hill country. It seems that judgment has happened at this point in history. So this is not God threatening Israel, saying, well, I, I hated Esau. You be careful, because I could hate you too. No, no, this is actually assuring them of his love. He says, I have loved you. 
I have loved you. You are of Jacob. And when we understand election, we should be assured of God's love. We should be assured of our own salvation that we cannot be taken from the hand of God. It's, it's, it's not a bragging or boasting opportunity for us to say, hey, we're in, you're out, sorry about this. But it's, it's instead being a living testimony and saying, look what God has done in my life. I was a vile, a disgusting, an evil wretch. I indulged in all kinds of sin and pleasure. I was, I was a detestable in the eyes of God because of my sin, because I identified with my sin. I, have, I acted on my sin nature. But look at what God has done to my life. And if you would repent, if you would turn from your sin, if you would turn to him, the gospel is yours as well. That's the purpose of it. It's not that we can think of ourselves better than everybody else, but it's that we can go out and be a witness and a testimony to what God has done for us and how God has cared for us and how God has loved us. We don't want to be in Edom's position here. We want to be in Jacob's position. We don't want God against us. And if we are in Christ God is for us. No one else can be against us. No one else can stand against us because we have God on our side. And that is what election says, that the God of the universe fights for us. The God of the universe goes before us. The God of the universe holds us in his hand. The God of the universe uh, keeps us. When we are tempted and when we are finding ourselves falling or backsliding, or whatever it might be, one thing we have to keep in mind is that it's not God's fault. It's not God's doing. We have to take responsibility for that. When we turn away from God, when we turn to other things, the, the blame lies solely on us. And in this, the same is with Israel. God is saying, I've loved you, but Israel's not doing great. They're, they're turning away from God. And they're even questioning him here. And throughout the book of Malachi, we'll get into this, but they actually pose uh, about seven questions to God, asking how or in what way. And so we'll see how God responds to that. And it is a very humbling thing to see how God, how God shows his love for his covenant people, but also disciplines and corrects uh, their thinking. And the message is the same today. Repent turn back, turn from our sins, turn back to God. God's grace is bigger than your sins. In other words, if you belong to God, you cannot out-sin God's grace. And if this is you this morning, if you have found yourself in a backslide or being tempted to fall away or you're, you're in some sort of sin, I would call you right now to humble yourself, reflect, examine your heart, repent, And turn back to the King of Kings. Turn back to the Lord of glory. And rest in the salvation that you have. That the the sacrifice of Christ was not to give us liberty to sin because we're forgiven now. But it's the opposite. That we see the great price that was paid and we long to obey Christ and his law. So when we are tempted to be like Israel and ask the question, how? How has God loved us? How have you loved us, God? Show it. Prove it. I like to think of Romans chapter 5, verse 8. It says, And God demonstrates his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. The greatest proof, for lack of a better term, the greatest assurance, the greatest picture of love that has ever been put on display was Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. Christ took upon himself the sins of the world, the sins for his people, fully and completely and finally the wrath of God poured out upon him. There is no other sacrifice to be made. There is no other work that is to be done. Christ has taken it upon himself. And if you would simply repent of your sins, turn to him, flee to the cross, and rely upon his sacrifice made, his blood spilt for you, you can share in this salvation as well. And that is the call this morning, and that is um, what we have. And so as we go through Malachi and the different uh, uh, applications that it has for us, it all points to Christ. It all points to God's love for his covenant people and what he continues to do for us until his return as we do await that day. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for preserving your word for us and the truth that is on every single page and every single word. We thank you for being a God of covenant. We thank you that those whom you call to yourself you do not cast away, that we can rest in your promises, we can rest in the assurance of our salvation that was paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, as we continue in our worship, as we sing this next song to you, would you be in the midst of here? May it be a pleasing sound to your ears, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.